Daniel 5, verses 1 through 31, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, and that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand, and the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the world, words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or color, your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would he killed and whom he would he kept alive. Whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. 
And this is the writing that was inscribed, many, many, tekel and parson. This is the interpretation of the manner. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, a chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, hopefully, after all the historical background we did at the end of last week's study, and if you're watching here and you don't know what I'm talking about, go to last week's study, especially at the end of the study. I laid out all the historical things that had gone on between chapter 4 and chapter 5. But hopefully, after all the historical background, um, these verses read with a little bit more depth now with an understanding. Hopefully, you now read when you hear him say, your father or your son, you realize that Nebuchadnezzar, sorry, Belshazzar is not Nebuchadnezzar's actual son, but he's actually a few kings later, but it meant predecessor, and, you, and also the other word meant successor. Belshazzar is actually Nabonidus's son. Now, if you remember where we ended up last week, at this point, while this party is going on, Cyrus the Mede, of the, in the Medo-Persian army are damming up the Euphrates River and attacking the city as these things are all happening. While this party's going on, while the writing's on the wall, the army is outside the city, damming up the Euphrates, sneaking under the wall through the riverbed, and then being led into the inner gate, and Darius, sorry, not Darius, but Belshazzar is going to be killed that night. Now, because of Daniel 5, 30 and 31, look again at verses 30 and 31. Then Belshazzar gave, sorry, 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. We know from this and historical evidence that this evening is October 12th, 539 B.C. This is the end of the Babylonian kingdom. The kingdom of the Medes and the Persians will start at this point. Now, I touched last week how for many years, scholars, if you will, I put that in quotes, tried to refute Daniel as not being accurate. They're saying Daniel's not an accurate book because they say there's no evidence of any Belshazzar being king of Babylon. And for years, there was no evidence besides in the scriptures that there was anybody named Belshazzar that ruled in Babylon until within the last 10 or so years and more. Actually, there's been much evidence with the archaeological digs and all that. They're finding that actually Belshazzar is a real person and he was co-regent with his father Nabonidus and all that stuff that we talked about last week. So that's important for us later on in our study tonight. So keep that in mind because there were people that for years say, well, if you look in outside of the Bible in any historical evidence, there's no Belshazzar that's king. That proves that Daniel's not accurate. Well, over time, we've now come to realize that even though Daniel wrote about Belshazzar, and he was real. And just because there was no historical evidence that we knew of didn't mean that that refutes the Bible. Actually, the Bible's proven to be true. And the more time goes on, the more the Bible's being proven to be true. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you think Belshazzar knew that Cyrus was closing in? Yes. Actually, Doing a little historical study, you'll find only days before this, some key cities had fallen to Cyrus, and Belshazzar had to have known. He had to have known this was going on. When you got an army like that damming up the river and all this stuff, then why throw a lavish party in the midst of all that's going on? Why throw a party? Go back to Daniel chapter 5. Look, look at what it says he did. 
says King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And then Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his predecessor, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought in and the king and his lords and his wives and their concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple and the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood and stone. This is all going on with their, the kingdom is crumbling all around them, has been for years. Babylon itself, the city, was protected in such a way that that's pretty much where, where they were hanging on. Cyrus and his army, the Medo-Persian armies, come in to attack them. And they decide, let's hold a party. Now, there's a few reasons why. One would be try to boost morale. You know, hey guys, it's not as bad as it looks. We can still have a party. Everything's fine. There's also another reason. Some people try to numb themselves to things that they don't like. You ever know anybody that has that? When they're struggling in their life, when there's trouble, they find ways to numb themselves. I'm going to show you a passage of scripture that may surprise you. Go to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, look at verses 4 through 7. Proverbs 31, verses 4 through 7. It's not for kings, O Lemuel. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. And this is interesting. Here we have an interesting, uh, almost a conflict here in the passage. It's not for kings to drink wine or to take strong drink. Why? Because they are given responsibility to rule and they need to have their wits about them and have, be in control of their, their, their senses, if you will. That way they don't rule incorrectly by doing, making decisions when they're drunk. And how many of a king over the years has made bad decisions when they were drunk? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, we could list a bunch. But then it goes on and it says, for those who are perishing, give them strong drink. For those that are going to die, Give them the strong drink so they don't realize their misery. By the way, did you know that that's what they tried to do for Jesus when he was on the cross? Go with me real quickly to Mark chapter 15. It actually was a practice of the Jews, probably from Proverbs 31. Mark chapter 15. Look at verses 21 through 23. Mark 15, verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry Jesus' cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Here's wine, but it's also got a painkiller in it. But Jesus doesn't take it. He could have. Proverbs 31 even says, hey, someone that's dying, let them have that so they don't realize their misery. But Jesus, the Bible says, would not take the wine mixed with the myrrh, the painkiller. He took the full taste, if you will, of the suffering for our sin. But go to John chapter 19 now. 
Right before the end of Jesus' time on the cross, John's account shows us something else that happens. In John 19, look at verses 28 through 30. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. That's fulfilling Psalm 22. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. At the beginning of the time that he was on the cross, he was offered wine mixed with a painkiller and he wouldn't take it. Yet at the very end, he's thirsty, just like the Bible said he would be. And he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. By the way, some of you probably know this. Maybe many of you probably don't. There's been so much loss of blood at this time with Jesus. That's where the thirst is coming from. So much loss of blood. This body doesn't have much liquid in it anymore. And they had a jar of sour wine. They took a sponge, put it on a stick, put it up to his mouth, and he drank it. And then said, it's finished. Why did he drink that one? Probably just so he could say his last words and get them out of his mouth. When he was offered the wine at the beginning, mixed with painkiller, he didn't take it. But once the scripture was fulfilled and he was done, he took that drink and he died. So why are they throwing a party? Possibly to boost morale? If it's not as bad as it looks, guys, we're going to be all right. It also is they might be numbing themselves to what's going on. But this also might be a last ditch effort to call upon the small g gods that Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had spurned by having them worship the moon god. Remember last week in our study, we talked about how Nabonidus had taken them away from worshiping Bel and Marduk and the gods of wood and stone, and he tried to get them to worship the moon god, Sin. And that caused a lot of problems between him and the people, especially the priests of Marduk and all this. And Nabonidus being gone a lot, there were people that didn't like him. And of course, when the king's not there, the people are going to fuss a whole lot more about him than when he's around and maybe Belshazzar is trying to appease everybody and maybe call upon these false gods to help because he knows that this is going on. Go to Daniel chapter 5 and look at verses 22 and 23. Daniel 5, 22 and 23. And you, his son or successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze, of iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. There's a couple of things here in this passage I'm going to pull out. One is... They've pray, you've praised the gods of wood and stone that can't hear or see. And at the same time, you're dishonoring who? See, there's something else going on here as well. Not only might he be calling on these gods of wood and stone to help because Cyrus and his army are coming to attack. Maybe they were thinking, hey, this is happening because my father tried to get everybody worshiping the moon god sin. Let's, 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 let's call back on the, these false gods that we used to worship. Of course, they don't see them as false gods. And let's call on these gods that we used to worship. Maybe that'll make everything okay. Maybe they'll help us. But on top of that, who's behind all this? Satan. Satan is behind all this. And he's using this opportunity to thumb his nose at God. 
Now, ultimately, you're right, Hunter, it is God. But in this instance, Satan is wanting to use this opportunity to thumb his nose at God. Let me say something to you, folks, and I'm going to show it to you from the Scriptures. Even though Satan knows he's defeated, he still attempts to despise God. There's no repentance in Satan. And by the way, that's one of the evidences of those who are his followers. No repentance. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Let me show you a few things that are going to happen during the tribulation period. And look at the response. In Revelation chapter 12, look at verses 7 through 12. It says, Now a war arose in heaven. This is going to happen at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Folks, I hope you understand this. Right now, Satan is allowed to be in the presence of God. He appears daily to accuse the brethren, the Bible says. We see in the book of Job, when the angels appear before God, Satan came with them, chapter 1, chapter 2. For years, people say, well, Satan can't be in God's presence because God can't be in the presence of evil. Yes, he can. <laughs> He's everywhere, isn't he? If God couldn't be in the presence of evil, where could he go? You know? <laughs> but there's going to be a point where Satan is going to be ultimately cast down to earth, not able to enter in God's presence anymore. And at that point, he knows that his time is short. We know how long it is, three and a half years of our time period in measurements. And even though he knows he's defeated, even though he knows that his time is short, what's he going to do? Do as much damage as he can. Go to Revelation chapter 16. I'm going to read to you the whole chapter. Look, listen closely at what's going to be going on on the earth, and then look at the response of the world to this. Revelation 16, verses 1 through 21. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and the harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse, like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. By the way, imagine what that's going to smell like. Those of you that are on the west side of the Indian River, you don't even know what it's going to be like yet. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of the water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. By the way, did you notice it doesn't say an is to come? If it does, you're going from a different set of manuscripts. Actually, the, the, the earliest manuscripts don't have an is to come. Most likely, is to come was added later on. The earliest manuscripts don't say who and who is to come. There's actually a couple of places in Revelation that that happens. And you know why? Because at the time that it's happening, Jesus is coming back. It is all happening. It's the end of the tribulation period. All this stuff's happening on the earth. And who, what happens at the very end of the tribulation period? Jesus shows up and he sets up his kingdom. It's no longer it is to come because it is time. Now, look what it says. 
it goes on and says, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, the Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake that the great city that's Jerusalem was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." I mean, it's pretty obvious God's doing something at this time on the earth. And the response of the people is to curse God. There's no repentance. By the way, did anybody catch that in the end of the tribulation period, God's going to have the river Euphrates dry up so that he can bring judgment on Babylon? Isn't that interesting? Remember how Babylon was first defeated? They dammed up the river Euphrates. So the army could get under the walls. God was giving a little foreshadowing way back when he destroyed Babylon the first time, although they didn't, it wasn't the ultimate destruction that the Bible talks about. Babylon, the prophecies in Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51 and Isaiah chapter 50 as well. There's lots of prophecies about a future judgment of Babylon. Revelation chapter 17 and 18 both talk about the future judgment of the nation of Babylon, the city of Babylon, because that's going to be the headquarters for the Antichrist kingdom at the end of the tribulation period. And listen to me. Those prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming judgment of Babylon said that it will be so destroyed, no human being will ever live there ever again. That isn't what happened when the Medes and the Persians came in. The Medes and the Persians did, were used by God to defeat Babylon, but they took over living there. Daniel kept living there. People kept living there. Folks, there is a judgment coming on Babylon that the Bible says is still yet to come. And when God brings that final judgment, the attitude of the people that are left at that time is not repentance. Just like Satan even knows, but he doesn't care. Now as they're partying, a hand appears in the room and he writes an inscription on the wall. Now the king doesn't know what it says and the whole thing really scares him. Actually, it scares him more than Cyrus scares him. By the way, this hand or this finger that's writing on the wall, he's been seen before in the Bible. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31, look at verse 18. 
In Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, it says, And he gave to Moses, God gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with what? The finger of God. God wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets of stone with his own hand. But I want to show you that we've seen the hand of God and the finger of God a little bit before this as well. Go back with me to Exodus chapter 7. Now, I really want you to stick with me here because there's something that I need you to see. You see, Belshazzar calls in his wise men. We're going, I want you to go to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 9 in just a second. Belshazzar calls in his wise men, his enchanters, his astrologers, and all these guys, and he has them try to interpret the writing and what it means and, and read it and tell me what it means, and they're unable to. And if you've been following along with us in Daniel, these guys have looked pretty inept, haven't they? Remember, Nebuchadnezzar says, I had this dream, tell me the dream, and then tell me what its interpretation is. And then later on, he, uh, and, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream, and this time he tells him what the dream is, but he wants the interpretation and calls in his guys, his astrologers, his Chaldeans, his enchanters, and they're unable to do it. They look inept. I don't want you to get too comfortable with thinking that those who don't know God, who delve into the magic arts, aren't dealing with something real. I want you to see from Scripture. Let me just say this to you, folks. Is it possible to invite Jesus into your heart to come live within you? It's just as possible to invite demons to come live within you as well. And there's many different ways that you do that through Ouija boards or astrology and all these different things. Listen to me, folks. Not astrology. Yeah, astrology. Not, the, the astronomy is different from astrology. Astrology. There's lots of different ways that you do that. And folks... These people that do the psychic stuff and all these different things and the seances, they do have real connection with the spiritual realm at times. And you don't ever want to mess with it. And I'll show you in just a second here how real this is. Go to Exodus chapter 9. Look at verses 9 through 12. Did I say chapter 9? Sorry, chapter 7. Exodus chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. It says, When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded it. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and there the magicians of Egypt also did by their secret arts. They did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. But were they able to have their staffs turn into snakes? Yes, they were. Go to Exodus chapter 7, look at verses 19 through 22. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and there shall be, the, be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so the Egyptians couldn't even drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Isn't that interesting? In copying him, they're making the river turn to blood more. Go to Exodus chapter 8. Look at verses 5 through 7. Exodus chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, 
over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up upon the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Were these enchanters and magicians able to do this stuff? Yes, they were. Folks, you might even have a psychic tell you something that might happen or tell you something from the past. Let me just say, they're talking to demons. And just because these magicians and enchanters don't look so, well, they look inept, don't take this stuff lightly. It's not a joke. It's not something to be played with. Stay away from it. Yes, sir. Oh, the great ghost TV shows, all that stuff. Stay away from talking to other spirits and spirit guides. You're right. But let me show you what happens in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19. In Exodus chapter 8, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and, stretch, and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. And all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't listen to them as the Lord had said. Listen to that. They came to realize, all right, we're not able to do this. This is, this, this, this is God. By the way, what were they saying when they said, this is God, we're not able to do it, this is God. What were they saying about what they were able to do prior? It was Satan, it wasn't God. When they weren't able to do it, they realized, we're not able to do this with the powers that we have, the connections we have. This is actually being done by God. By the way, if you go back to Daniel 5, you'll notice how the scripture keeps pointing out how scared Belshazzar is. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. The king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. In other words, it could have been written, he sobered up quick. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. I want to talk about something real quick. I don't think we even can fully grasp how scared Belshazzar is at this point. Remember, he thinks, or not thinks, he knows that the Cyrus and his army are attacking the city. But he decides to throw a party instead. But this hand comes into the room and writes on the wall, and the dude sobers up, and he is so scared, he's willing to give authority to anybody that can tell him what's going on. You can be co-ruler in the kingdom. I think we need to really not ever lose sight of a true biblical fear of God. Go with me to Revelation chapter 1. The Bible says very clear as you're turning to Revelation chapter 1 that those of us who have a relationship with Him don't need to fear in the sense of fearing punishment because God's already fully punished Jesus for all of our sins. But the Bible does still talk about having a holy fear of God. And look at Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. John, as you know, is on the Isle of Patmos. And he hears this voice behind him and he turns. And it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. If John, who knew Jesus intimately well, 
had walked with him and lived with him for three years, leaned on his breast, knew him very much so to the point that he would describe himself in his book as the one Jesus loved. If John sees Jesus in his glorified state and falls down like he was a dead person, how much more do you think those who are going to be judged by God, who aren't in a right relationship with him, are going to fear? And folks, if you're listening right now and you're one of those people that has never trusted Jesus as your Savior, let me just say something to you in as much love as I can. You better be afraid of him right now and humble yourself and fall before him and say, the only way I can be made right with you is through faith in your son. He lived the sinless life. He died in my place. He rose from the dead. Jesus is God. That's the only way you will be spared what's about to be read. Go to Revelation chapter 15. Go to Revelation chapter 15. Look at verses 5 through 8. Revelation 15, verses 5 through 8. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the ten of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, we just read chapter 16 earlier tonight. Remember what happened when each of those angels poured their bowls? It all happens, all one after another on top of each other. And the whole world is totally destroyed with hail and fire and earthquakes and blood and Folks, every island will disappear. Every mountain will be leveled. There's not a city on the earth that won't be leveled by this earthquake. Even Jerusalem will be affected by it. Listen closely. When those seven angels who had been given those seven bowls were sent out to go pour out their wrath, and when it's going to happen at that time, the Bible says, John saw ahead of time, that nobody could get anywhere near God at that moment. He's going to be very mad. His wrath is something you don't want to play with. Go to chapter 14. Look at verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Folks, did you catch that? Hell is forever. Don't let anybody try to tell you, well, you, if you go to hell, if there is such a place, if you go, you only go for a period of time and then you're extinguished. No, the Bible says that it lasts forever and ever, where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. And this isn't the only place that says hell is an eternal torment forever and ever. Oh, and by the way, the Bible says those that are there are going to be receiving the full strength of God's wrath. If John, who knew Jesus intimately and had a relationship where he was forgiven of his sins, just saw the glorified Jesus and fell as a dead man, you can understand why Belshazzar is shaken a little bit. He hadn't even seen God except just a hand come into the room. Go to Revelation 20. Go to Revelation 20, look at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Again, when God brings his judgment and the final judgment at the great white throne, which Christians won't be at, we'll be at a different judgment seat, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. But the great white throne judgment is for all the wicked dead. At the end of time, all the wicked dead from all history will come before God. And the Bible says when that happens and that judgment is set, earth and sky are trying to get away from him. That's how bad it's going to be. Let me give you one more. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. We tend to like to laugh a little bit at the fact that Belshazzar was shaking. He had every right to. Hebrews chapter 10, look at verses 26 through 31. The scripture says, for if we go on sinning, Hebrews 10, 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Folks, this isn't a warning for those who are Christians and start sinning. No, no, when it says if you go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, it's, it's saying for those who know, who have heard that the only way you can be made right is through faith alone in Jesus Christ, that he's the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through him. If you know this and you reject it, you are willfully, deliberately trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant. You say, wait a minute, Jim, it said the blood of the covenant which sanctified them. Listen closely. Jesus died on the cross for everybody in the world. Their, pay, their, their, their sins have already been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. They have to receive it by faith or else they don't get to experience the benefit of him paying for their sins. But he's already paid for your sins. Jesus, the message of the gospel is not God's mad at you, but if you ask him to forgive you, he'll change his mind. The message of the gospel is for God so loves you, he sent his son to die for you, that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life, would not perish Folks, the message of the gospel is this. Jesus has already come. He said it's finished, paid for, to tell us die. He's paid for your sins. But if you say, nah, I think I can get to heaven by being good. I think there are many ways to good. And you had it preached to you, not from just Jim Johnson, but from many others and family members and friends. God's been keeping track of all the times he's opened your eyes to this truth. And if you go on sinning deliberately after that, there's no other sacrifice for your sins, folks but a fearful judgment. By the way, you think Belshazzar was scared when he saw the hand in the room? What happened to him that night? He ended up in Hades. He hadn't even just begun to be scared. And I share this with you because I don't want anyone listening to perish. God's not wanting for anyone to perish. Oh, by the way, he knows many will go to destruction. Few there be that believe in Jesus, but that doesn't mean he doesn't call you and offer you this salvation. Folks, don't take God's wrath towards sin lightly. 
Now here we see most likely Belshazzar's mother, possibly a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, come and speak calming wisdom. I'm not going to take any more time in this, but let me just say this. It might do us some well, men, to listen to the women in our lives when they speak truth. Just ask Pilate or Nabal. Those who don't know the story of Abigail and Nabal. There's many stories of men who had their wives lovingly come to them and say, this one is Belshazzar's mom, and say, listen to me. Listen to me. We have a tendency sometimes to be prideful. I'm just going to leave it at that. Because I go any further, some of you women will think you're always right. So I don't want to go there. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> the words, by the way, were actually written in Aramaic. These words were written in Aramaic, which many in Babylon should have known well. I mean, Aramaic was the trading language of that day. So why didn't they know what it said. We can kind of understand how they wouldn't understand the interpretation, maybe. But nobody even knew what it, was, what it said. Now, there's, there's speculation here. And, and I'm just going to go with speculation and just tell you, my guess would be that chances are it was written without vowels. Because a lot of times in Hebrew writing, they'll do things without vowels. And most likely, it might have been written from right to left. So actually, what probably came up on the wall was S R P L. K-T-H-N-M-H-N-M. Now, if I had just started the whole Bible study with, okay, guys, here's your test today. Just tell me what this means. S-R-P-L-K-T-H-N-M-H-N-M. How many of you would have got it right? Probably none of you. But if you take those letters and you go from right to left, you'll see that the vowels are missing, but it's pretty much the letters for many, many, tekel, Paris. Eupharsin is the plural. Perez is the singular. Daniel walks in the room. I don't know how many of you caught this, and i got to be honest with you, I didn't catch it till tonight as I was reading it. I've studied this. I've looked at it over and over. We've studied it all last week. I saw something tonight I didn't see until I was reading it just now. Was Daniel in the room when the wives and the concubines and everybody was drinking the wine and praising the gods of gold and silver? No. This is afterwards he's called in. The party's kind of broke up a little bit. Everybody's standing there scared. There's probably puddles on the floor here and there. But listen, Daniel's called in and Daniel says exactly what had gone on in the room, even though he wasn't there. Because God had already told him and shown him what was going on. And he, because of God, he understood exactly what the writing was. And then he said, let me explain to you these letters. These are actually words you know Many, many, tekel, ufarsin. And then he gives the interpretation. Your time's come to an end. You've weighed, been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And he's taken the king, kingdom from you. God gave them the ability to decipher it, plus the meaning of the, the wording, which he interpreted to, to Belshazzar. But I want to deal with something tonight that might have been a problem for some of you. It was a question that jumped into my mind. Go to chapter 5, look at verse 17 again. In Daniel 5, verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, 
and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. If you remember, sorry, Belshazzar has said, whoever can read this writing and give me the interpretation, I'll put you in a gold robe, that's royalty. I'll give you a gold chain, money, and you can be third ruler in the kingdom. You can be co-regent with me and Nabonidus. And Daniel says, don't want it. You can keep that stuff. I'm still going to give you the interpretation, but you can keep it. But now look at verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Looks like he took it. It definitely was put on him. But again, I want to teach you something tonight. When you read scripture, meditate on it. That means to think on it, chew on it a little bit. Put yourself in Daniel's situation. Obviously, we know why he said, I don't care about the gifts. It was like, I'm not doing this for the money. I want you to know who God is. But he receives this stuff. He receives it. But what has Daniel just said? You're gone tonight. So in his mind, let's not waste a whole lot of breath into, well, I don't want this and all this stuff. I'll take it on, but it doesn't mean nothing because you ain't going to be in power in 24 hours. So let's not waste our time worrying about whether or not I wear the gold or the robe or any of that kind of stuff. Because to be honest with you, I know because God's already shown me another king's going to be in charge in 24 hours and he'll get to determine whether or not I'm in any, any authority. It wasn't worth messing with. By the way, if you know how everything's going to play out, you can be a lot more relaxed about stuff. Let me say this to you briefly. I don't want to chase a rabbit, but I do, but I don't. Has not God's word shown us as Christians that he's got us taken care of? Amen. He's going he's gonna to walk us through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't have to fear evil. We can not worry about our enemies and all this stuff. Let me just say, some of you are spending too much time worrying about masks and vaccines. We already know that we're all taken care of. And Romans 14 says this in verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and the Lord is able to make him stand. In other words, don't waste your time telling everybody else what you think they ought to be doing when it comes to masks and vaccines. Let me say one more thing. That same chapter, 14, verse 22, it says this, Whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. And right now, unfortunately, in my role of going and helping churches get back to following God, I'm having to deal too much with churches that are fighting over masks and vaccines. People setting themselves up in their camps, and they believe very strongly one way or the other. Listen to me. The Bible says also in Romans 14, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And if what you're doing isn't by faith that you believe God's told you to do it, you're sinning by doing it then. But you never are supposed to get worried about telling everybody else how they ought to be, whether they should have a vaccine or not have a vaccine, whether they should wear a mask or not have a mask. That's not our job. Our job is to individually walk together with Jesus and to love each other in the process, realizing that God will help them see what he wants them to see. We're to be, Romans 14 again says, working towards mutual upbuilding and love. Daniel wasn't worried about this whole, should I take this or not? He knew it ain't going to matter in a few days. And I say this to you, when Jesus comes and gathers his church, 
Do you think you're really going to be standing there and saying, hey, Lord, I was telling people to get vaccine and are not vaccinated. And Lord, I and he's going to say, you got caught up in all the wrong stuff. A bigger picture will help you be relaxed in the midst of all this mess. God is in control. As we close tonight, though, we need to wrestle with something from Daniel 531. Now, many of you might not even realize from reading that there's an issue here. But some people think this is an issue. Look at Daniel 531. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Here's the question. Who is this Darius the Mede? Now, he's mentioned many times here. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. In chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps and be, to be throughout the whole kingdom. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, chapter 6, verse 9 says this, Therefore King Darius signed the document in injunction, injunction. Look at verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages. Look at verse 28. Uh, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. Chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Azraharis, a, a descendant of Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. As for me, in the first year of Darius, the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So here we see that this Darius is mentioned many times in the book of Daniel. And I apologize to my wife, whose job is to write the scriptures down for the people watching online. And she couldn't keep up with me on that one. Sorry. You did it. I'm impressed with you, Becky. Thank you. But we need to look at some possibilities of who this Darius the Mede is. Because remember how I told you earlier? People for years said that Daniel's not accurate because there was no Belshazzar who was king of Babylon. And then years later, we found out that there was. Well, as of right now, there is no other historical evidence outside the scriptures of any Darius the Mede ruling in Babylon. So we're going to look at some possibilities tonight as we close. Number one, no such person existed. So the scripture's inaccurate. We can chuck that one, can't we? You know how we can chuck that one? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, Every word of Scripture is God-breathed. And as I've already shown you, over time, the longer we go and the more we find, we more realize the Bible was right all along. You know, for years, Christians in early part of the church didn't really believe, and the people in the world didn't believe the world was round. You know, the Bible had said that long, long, long before that, how God sits over the circle of the earth. And there's many places that clearly show that the earth was round. But it wasn't accepted because it was in the Bible. But over time, the Bible's been proved to be true. So let's chuck that no such person existed. Darius the Mede could possibly be another name, some people say, for the king of Persia, Cyrus. That Darius is just an honorary official title. And some people try to take Daniel chapter 6, verse 28, as their evidence for Darius the Mede and Cyrus the king of Persia being the same person. Look again at Daniel 6, verse 28. It says, so this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Some people say of Darius, which is the reign of Cyrus the Persian. That's how they try to interpret that. But it doesn't really read that way in the scripture. It reads like they're two different individuals, doesn't it? Now, before I get to the third suggestion, which I, is the one I lean toward, there are other suggestions too. Some people try to say it's some guy named Ugubaru and another one named Gubaru and all these different things. Again, I don't see enough evidence in the scriptures and, and everything to deal with all that, so I'm not going to waste your time with it. If you really care, there's ways you can go dig this up. But 
I think Darius was an actual person who was given authority to rule in Babylon by Cyrus. Go back to chapter 5 and look at verse 31 again. It says, That very night Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede, look at that next word, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Actually, in the Hebrew, it means it was given to him by someone in authority over him. And if you know anything about the history of Cyrus, Cyrus was away on eastern campaigns a lot. And his authority to govern Babylon would have been limited that way, and it most likely was that he gave this Darius, the Mede, the authority over Babylon. Right now, outside of the Bible, we don't have any historical evidence that there was any Darius the Mede that ruled in Babylon. Does that mean that the Bible's not true? Or does it just mean we don't have any other evidence besides the Bible? Let me say this to you. If you have it in the Bible, you have the best evidence for those of us who believe and understand. Again, it could be number two, that it's just another term, an honorary title, and it's referring to Cyrus. I lean toward number three, that this Darius the Mede was an actual individual who had been given authority to rule over Babylon by Cyrus. Now, as we wrap up tonight, if some of you know, some of you don't, we won't have Bible study for the next few weeks. We'll meet back in the first week of June with Bible study sticking back, kicking back in then because Becky and I are going to be on a traveling preaching trip in Michigan, Virginia, and so on. We look forward to being back together with you. I don't know what's going to happen between now and when we come back together in June, but I want to tell you this. Take a deep breath. Relax. The Lord is your shepherd. You shall not want. He's going to at times make you lie down in green pastures and take a nap and lead you by still waters. Other times he's going to lead you in paths of righteousness for his namesake and restore your soul. And even though you walk in the valley, through the valley of the shadow of death, whoa, 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 hang on, Jim, 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 Jim. I like the green grass and the still waters. What are, where's this valley of the shadow of death thing coming? You missed it. I already told you how you get to the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Listen to me carefully. The paths of righteousness is what takes us to the valley of the shadow of death. The Bible says, count it joy when you face trials, because these trials are going to produce righteousness. Hebrews 12, 5 and following, talks about how we're to not take lightly the discipline of the Lord. He disciplines those He loves. And it's not pleasant at the time, but later it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. We're living in a world right now where things are a little out of control. Kingdoms are following, falling left and right. Things are falling apart. Things are going crazy. Everybody's coming up with all their solutions, and the world is panicking. Are they not? The church should not be. Amen. The church should not be. You have the greatest opportunity for people to ask you to give reason for the hope that lies within you. Relax. You're going to be all right. I was playing golf. Last week, I know that surprises some of you, but I was playing golf and I'm a member of a golf course here in Melbourne on 192 Crane Creek. And to be honest with you, the greens are a little bit rough. Fairways are beautiful. The greens are, they kind of lost them a little bit. And I was playing one day by myself and I got paired up with another guy and we got talking and he's griping about the greens. And he goes, if I were you, I'd be really upset about this paying your money as a member and having them take such bad care of the greens. And you know what? God just totally gave me what to say. 
I looked at him and I said, sir, I can understand where you're coming from and I can see being upset about it, but I got to tell you why it doesn't bother me that much. He said, why? I said, because I'm a child of God through Jesus Christ. And Jesus has already died on the cross to cover my sins. And he rose from the dead and he's guaranteed me eternity. He's put his spirit within me to guide me and lead me and to direct me. And I know that every single day, if I just walk with him, everything that he's got for me and he's got good stuff for me is going to happen and he's going to take care of me. So whether or not the greens are a little bumpy really shouldn't bother me. That's a small matter. The man was like, well, that's an interesting way to look at it. In other words, I have no idea what you just said. But you know what? If God wants, that'll take root one day. Folks, Jesus, if you're a child of God, has already taken away your, your sin problem. He's sealed you for eternity. He's promised to be with you always. Everything else is gravy. I love you. We'll see you in a few weeks. Thanks for coming.